2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are continuing on with our look into Civil War medicine. In the last installment of this little mini-series we've been working on, we examined the life of Mary Edwards Walker, who was the only woman surgeon formally engaged for field duty during the Civil War. She was also the first woman to receive a Congressional Medal of Honor. And although she'd treat anyone who needed help, Walker was officially on the Union side. So for this podcast, we're going to switch things up a little bit and talk about a prominent Confederate doctor, Dr. Hunter Holmes Maguire.
0: We've tried to be diverse with all of these Civil War episodes we've been doing. And balanced. And ba- yeah, showing showing different races, different sexes, different sides of the war. So, yeah, well, like you said, we're going to be talking about Dr. Hunter Holmes Maguire today, a Confederate doctor. And of course, Maguire didn't have any trouble actually becoming an army doctor like Mary Walker did simply because of his gender. But he did face some challenges that were pretty unique to doctors of the Confederacy. And we're going to talk about that a lot more later. But the thing that's really interesting about McGuire is that you almost can't talk about him without discussing his most famous patient,
2: Lieutenant General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Yes, hence the title of this podcast. And Jackson was, of course, one of the most accomplished and revered officers of the Confederate Army. And McGuire treated him after he received his final battle wounds and was with him throughout his final illness and his death. Because of Jackson's prominence and the circumstances surrounding his final days, though, many modern historians and physicians, in fact, have continued to speculate about the true cause of death involved here and have examined and really re-examined the treatment that he received. So we're going to focus on that particular moment in Dr. McGuire's career, Jackson's death. But we're going to start by telling you how McGuire became a Confederate Army doctor in the first place.
0: This episode really is about him. So McGuire was born October 11th, 18. 18- In Winchester, Virginia. And he seemed to grow up with a love for and a strong interest in medicine, largely because his father, Hugh H. McGuire, was a physician. So it sort of ran in the family. Uh, McGuire actually used to join his dad on house calls when he was just a kid, really witnessing the profession firsthand from a young age.
2: And McGuire's father actually became dean of Winchester Medical College and a professor of surgery there. And McGuire ended up doing part of his medical training there, too. After graduating from there in 1855, McGuire went to Philadelphia to study medicine at both the University of Pennsylvania and Jefferson Medical College, which was considered one of the best med schools around before the war. And when you look into it a little bit, you'll see that different sources have slightly differing dates and um, opinions about what degrees Maguire received where and to what extent he took courses. But we do, do know that he did go there. He soon fell ill, though, and had to return to Winchester for a little while to convalesce. He stayed around there for a couple of years and taught as professor of anatomy at Winchester Medical College, but still had that itch to further his medical education a little bit. So he went back to
0: Philadelphia by 1858 and attended Jefferson Medical College again. Um, But it was while McGuire was studying there in 1859 that abolitionist John Brown raided the U.S. Armory and Arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. And um, I know lots of you guys suggest this topic to us and many uh, I guess, who have studied U.S. history are familiar with it, but Brown was trying to get weapons to start an armed slave revolt, but his plan failed when he was caught. So Brown was tried and hanged for treason, but a lot of northern abolitionists really saw him as a martyr, kind of a hero for the movement. So the situation really highlighted the philosophical differences between the North and South, and that was reflected in what was going on among the medical students in Philadelphia. This was just, to give you, and I feel like a really, really big current event story for them at the time. But by that December 1859, the northern medical students, because of John Brown, because of other things going on in the country, um, and the southern medical students were starting to get into confrontations with each other. And the southern students, it got to the point where they didn't really feel safe at school anymore. So McGuire worked to arrange for all of the Southern medical students who wanted to get out of Philadelphia to transfer to the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and the school agreed to take them on, accepted all of their course credits for Jefferson, you know, just a really smooth transition for everybody, and several hundred students took that deal that McGuire arranged.
2: McGuire ended up getting a degree from Virginia Medical College as well in 1860 and he taught and did more coursework for a little while after that, spending some time in New Orleans, but eventually returning to Winchester when states started to secede from the Union. According to an article by John Hanks in The American Surgeon, it's not that Maguire was really pro-slavery, but he felt a very strong allegiance to his home state. So when the war broke out in 1861, he offered his services to the Confederacy. And they really needed him. According to Hank. some estimates suggest that only 27 Southern doctors had surgical experience before the war, and McGuire was one of them.
0: And he had something else going for him, too. In addition to that, McGuire had a lot of experience moving through both Southern and Northern society. You know, he could interact with different sets of people. And at a very young age, he was only about 25 or 26 years old at this time, he had already gotten tons of education tons of experience. He'd worked as a professor of surgery, so he just had like, the best resume you could ask for
2: for, for this position. So McGuire was commissioned as a surgeon in May of 1861, and his first assignment was near Winchester with the Army of the Shenandoah, which was under the command of Lieutenant General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson at the time. An article by Joe D. Haynes in America's Civil War has kind of a funny description of their first meeting. Apparently, the first time McGuire presented himself to Jackson in 1861, Jackson just kind of stared at him and then sent him away. McGuire eventually did get orders appointing him a surgeon in the Confederate Army, but it was several days after that. So later on, after the two got to know each other a little better, McGuire asked Jackson why his appointment hadn't happened immediately. And Jackson said, quote, you looked so young, I sent to Richmond to see if there was some mistake. I wouldn't want Stonewall Jackson to give me a cold look. I, think. I don't think I would either. After that initial bump, though, Jackson came to really respect McGuire as a physician, a colleague, and some sources suggest as even a friend. I mean, if you look at both their lives, they did seem to have a few things in common, even though Jackson, who was born in 1824, was many years McGuire's Sr. They were both from the Virginia area, and they both got involved in the war for similar reasons, a desire to defend their homes. Something you kind of see in a lot of Virginians in the Civil War, i think. That's true. Another thing they'd had in common is that they were both educators, or they had been educators. Before the raid at Harper's Ferry, Jackson had been living this relatively quiet life as an instructor at the Virginia Military Academy. Which I never knew before
0: i didn 't either I mean, you just know the the Stonewall legendary stuff, even if you think you kind of know about him, but McGuire really proved himself to Jackson early on after the first battle of Manassas, when Jackson was shot in the left middle finger. And the physician the general first went to wanted to amputate the finger. Jackson managed to sort of sneak off from that doctor and get a second opinion from McGuire, who was able to successfully treat the wound and save the finger. So, you know, even if they're both from Virginia, they have these things in common, you'd think that would be a a good bond to establish
2: with your patient. And it did. So Jackson was impressed And when he took the command of the Army of the Valley District, McGuire became his medical director. And the general wasn't the only one who held McGuire in really high regard. The doctor was renowned not only for his surgical ability, but for his logistical and organizational skills as well. According to Hanks, McGuire was pretty much doing what the best doctors on the union side were doing, but he was doing it with a lot less Although the Confederate Army had ample medical supplies when the war started, as it dragged on, the supply really diminished. Basically, they had to rely on seizing Union medical supplies in order to get what they needed to. It was one of the unique challenges of being a Confederate doctor. And
0: I think that's so interesting, too, sort of an added twist
2: to work that you have to do. Um, yeah, it's more than just your skill or the training you've had. It's what do you have at your disposal? Yeah, how can you how can you make it work? So one of McGuire's
0: biggest challenges, however, wasn't just making sure they could get supplies, how he could treat people. It came in the spring of 1863 when Confederate troops confronted the Union Army at Chancellorsville, Virginia. And prior to this, the Confederate Army had been doing pretty well. They'd had some victories at Manassas and Fredericksburg in 1862, and Jackson had seemed to pretty much own the Shenandoah Valley during the first couple years of the war. But when the Union Army advanced on Chancellorsville, things didn't look very good. They outnumbered the Confederates two to one and they had way more supplies, way more artillery. But amazingly, the Confederates managed to get the upper hand when Jackson pulled off one of his trademark flanking maneuvers. And Diblina, I bet you could explain flanking. I
2: think I can a little bit. I'm no (laughs) expert. But flanking basically meant taking troops on a longer, encircling march around an enemy rather than attacking head-on. Attacking directly would have been suicide in many cases because they they had fewer men. Well, which and all
0: the larger art- artillery on the other side too would come into account.
2: Exactly. So Jackson had become known for preferring this flanking strategy to attacking directly. He and General Robert E. Lee had realized on May 1st of that year that the Union Army had left its western flank open. So they saw their window of opportunity and they decided to attack from there. And by the evening of May 2nd, Jackson and his men were doing just that. Yeah. <laughs> They caught the Union Army completely off guard and dealt them a pretty serious blow. But Jackson wanted to take that a step farther and cut off the Union Army's retreat and try to destroy them completely.
0: So Stanwell rode ahead with a group of troops to see what the situation was, kind of a recon group, and see if cutting off the retreat would actually be possible. But because it was dark, it was a really dangerous time to be beyond your own lines. And sure enough, the party did did end up surprising the 18th North Carolina Regiment, which, of course, mistook them for federal cavalry being beyond their lines and opened fire. Jackson got shot in the right hand and then two places on his left arm. And it is, of course, one of the most famous friendly fire incidents of the war. And that's what we're going to be talking about for pretty much the rest of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, some
2: people see it as a real turning point. I mean, if they had actually been able to cut off the retreat, a lot of people think what would have happened Well, and,
0: and just losing Jackson. To
2: yeah, exactly. But Jackson managed to stay on his horse, Little Sorrel, until his aides helped him down. And the general was then carried on a litter to a receiving area west of the front lines. But the litter was dropped twice on the way there. Once because a bearer got shot, and again because a bearer tripped and fell. And both times, Jackson hit the ground pretty hard from a considerable height. So just adding to his injury. McGuire met him at the receiving area right away and said, quote, I hope you are not badly hurt, General. But he could see right away that Jackson's clothes were soaked with blood and was displaying all the classic signs of hemorrhagic shock. Cold hands clammy skin, pale lips and face, and it didn't look good at all. So McGuire readjusted the bandage on Jackson's arm to try to kind of slow the bleeding, and he gave him morphine and whiskey, and they transported him to a nearby field hospital.
0: And here's how McGuire's writings describe Jackson's wounds. There were two wounds in his arm. The first and most serious was about three inches below the shoulder joint, the ball dividing the main artery and fracturing the bone. The second was several inches in length. A ball having entered the outside of the forearm an inch below the elbow came out upon the opposite side, just about the wrist. So after examining him there, McGuire realized he was going to have to amputate that left arm. And he asked Jackson whether that was okay. Jackson replied, yes, certainly, Dr. McGuire. Do for me whatever you think best. And when McGuire gave him the chloroform before operating, Jackson even said, what an infinite blessing, before he became unconscious. And again, in those writings, McGuire later wrote that throughout the whole of the operation and until all the dressings were applied, Jackson continued
2: insensible. And the surgery seemed to be successful, and Jackson seemed to be doing really well the next day, though he did complain of a pain on his right side, so that was sort of Uh, foreshadowing things to come, as we'll see. A major came to receive instructions from him, and Jackson appeared to kind of know at this point that he wasn't in any state of mind to give any instructions. He said, quote, I don't know, I can't tell. Say to General Stewart, he must do what he thinks best. On May the 5th, General Lee sent instructions to move Jackson to a station that was 26 miles away. Basically, Lee didn't want Jackson so close to the battlefront because he was afraid federal troops might capture him. According to Haynes' article, Jackson said Said, quote, I'm not afraid of them. I've always been kind to their wounded, so I'm sure they'll be kind to me. But Jackson McGuire did end up making that bumpy, long ride together in an ambulance, and Jackson was taken to a place called Chandler House. And he seemed to be doing well initially after he was relocated. He slept well the night he arrived. He was eating well. He was even cheerful at times. So McGuire was optimistic, enough so that he actually allowed himself some sleep after being awake for about three days straight. That second night, though, at about 1 a.m. on May 7th, Jackson woke up nauseated and he had a pain on his right side again. By the time McGuire woke up, he saw Jackson's condition had gotten much, much worse.
0: So McGuire diagnosed the condition as pneumonia that had resulted from a contusion in his lung that had been caused by the general's fall, you know, when he was being carried back from behind enemy lines. But from that point on, the general's condition just continued to get worse and worse. He was exhausted. His breathing was labored. He was in a lot of pain. And McGuire called in several other doctors to consult. You know, he wasn't hogging his patient here. But no matter what they did, Jackson just got weaker. And Jackson said to McGuire at this point, quote, I see from the number of physicians that you think my condition dangerous. Maybe an attempt for a little Stonewall joke here towards the end, uh, or maybe just a an astute observation, but by Friday, Jackson's wife, Anna, and his one-month-old daughter came to visit, and there are several eyewitness accounts of how Stonewall spent time with his little daughter, trying to hold her hand in his injured one, and by Sunday, May 10th, his wife was weeping and telling Jackson that the doctors had said there was no hope, and um, after that, he asked to see McGuire.
2: Yeah, and Jackson asked Maguire at that point. He wanted to know straight up what was going on. So he said, quote, Doctor, Anna informs me that you have told her that I'm to die today. Is it so? And Maguire confirms that, yes, that's the case. So Jackson kind of turns his eyes toward the ceiling, and after a couple of moments he says, quote, Very good, very good. It is all right. Apparently he had wanted to die on a Sunday because he was really religious, which is another thing that I didn't know about Stonewall Jackson.
0: I didn't know that either, but Jackson did in fact die that day and at the end he seemed delirious and at times he would talk as if he was somewhere else, maybe the battlefield or the mess table. And um, the last moments of his are, are pretty amazing what was going through his head and those have of course been recorded so we can get a little picture of it. They're described as thus. Here's what he said. Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front rapidly. Tell Major Hawks. And that sentence was left unfinished.
2: And then in his writings, McGuire notes that Jackson kind of smiled and this expression of relief kind of came over his face. And then he said, quote, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. And then without the any sort of struggle, he just passed away. So now comes the modern
0: reevaluation part of the podcast, as we hinted at. Uh, modern physicians and historians have tried to reevaluate McGuire's diagnosis of Jackson's spinal illness, which, as we mentioned, was pneumonia. Um, McGuire didn't have his original notes from that period, though they were confiscated after the war. But he did reconstruct them three years later. However, he didn't record all the observations he based his diagnosis on. That That's why this is kind of a story that's open to a little bit of speculation.
2: Yeah, a lot of his observations were more like a friend would make the whole uh, recounting of his last words and saying things like, then without pain or the least struggle, his spirit passed from earth to the God who gave it. I mean, kind of more like an elegy
0: almost than, than a doctor writing.
2: So some agree with Maguire's take that pneumonia was the cause of death, but there are certain things that make people a little suspicious of this. Nowhere in Maguire's writings or in the couple of other writings there are about this is coughing mentioned, for instance, and that would be a sign or a symptom of pneumonia. Others, however, think that he might have died from a pulmonary embolism or a blood clot in the lung. The theory here is that the clots developed in the stump of the left arm, dislodged, and then ended up in the pulmonary arteries. Some, Still others think that there was an unspecified injury to another organ or some other type of infection that led to his death.
0: Yeah, that pain on the right side.
2: Exactly. As for McGuire, though, he stayed with the Confederate Army until the end of the war, and afterward he went to Richmond, established a medical practice there, and started teaching at the Medical College of Virginia. In 1866, he married a woman named Mary Stewart, and they had nine children together. And McGuire really did a lot for the city of Richmond over the course of his lifetime. Besides being widely recognized for his medical talents, he incidentally had a large practice in obstetrics and gynecology. He also helped establish a new medical college in Virginia, the University College of Medicine. And he did a lot to make sure the poor and indigent in the area had medical care. He had a number of prestigious positions and appointments, including the president of the American Medical Association in 1893.
0: Don't you think it's interesting, too, that he got into obstetrics and gynecology from being a military field doctor where that would not be in your day-to-day work at all. Yeah,
2: after doing all that trauma-type surgery.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really interesting medical about-face. But uh, Maguire died in Richmond September 1900, several months after he'd had a stroke. And in 1904, the state of Virginia erected a statue of Maguire near one of Jackson on the grounds of Richmond's capital. So appropriate there to have the doctor still tending to the general.
2: Yes, it is appropriate, almost poignant, I think. Um, But that's all we have in this installment of our Civil War mini series today. But if you guys want to suggest topics for future episodes, you can definitely write to us. Um, We know you guys communicate with us a lot, and we have to thank you for something else that you've done for us recently, which is a vote for us in the podcast awards. We won! We won! First place in the
0: education category. And we were against some really impressive competition. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say I'm surprised, but I was a little (laughs) bit surprised. So, yeah, we are super thrilled, first, that you guys nominated us, um, and then that you went out and voted for us. We are really excited. Dublina sent me a text message when she found
2: out we had won. Yeah. we need to celebrate, I think, sometime. We definitely will. Maybe we'll take pictures and, and post them yeah. <laughs> of our celebration or maybe not, depending how it turns out. But please keep sending us awesome ideas so we have wonderful things to podcast on. We're at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com or you can look us up on Facebook or we're on Twitter at Missed in History.
0: And if you want to learn a little bit more about the Civil War, or rather, test your knowledge about the Civil War, you're probably becoming quite informed by now, <laughs> at least on certain subjects. We do you have a Civil War quiz on our website? You can search for Civil War at www.howstuffworks.com
1: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Stuff staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
2: The richest, most powerful place on Earth.
1: A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything.
0: Power gives everything.
2: We have to get away from this place.
0: Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.